So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, um, if you remember kind of where we're at, so we are in verse 22, but if you look at verse uh, 18, this is kind of Paul's new section. So he started off reminding people, you are called, stop fighting. Okay, that, there's all these problems going on. I follow Paul, I follow Paulos. Then verse 18, Paul says this, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. So if the gospel, if the word of the cross is foolishness to the world, which is what he argues in verses 22, well, kind of where we are. Paul argues that, well, the Bible's foolishness, right? The gospel we preach to the world is, it's scoffworthy, right? It's nonsense. It's, you're on the wrong side of history, Christian. This is just a baloney. If that's true, why do we preach it? Common sense wisdom would say, would strongly advise against something more appealing, right? If the world didn't like it, then why don't you just change it? They'd like it more. They would join your crew. But here in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, we get a very powerful unfolding as why, as believers, as a church, why we do not resort to such measures. As Christians, we mustn't be worried or concerned what the world thinks of the gospel, they're not the litmus test for what truth is or how things ought to be said. And as Christians, we need to understand that. And it's hard because if you're like me, you fear, you tremble against the world, even though you shouldn't. You worry about those things. And the church is actually given one valuable, deep truth in the Bible. And this is what Paul's going to unfold. And it's this. How can someone who sees the word of the cross as folly see that same cross as precious, as beautiful, as the power of God. How does this change happen? So the change that I'm talking about is how can me and person B next to me look at the exact same thing, hear the exact same thing, read the exact same thing, and I see it, and it makes me want to weep and how good the Lord is to me. And the friend next to me just, you believe that ancient book? You are an imbecile. What's the difference? Why am I not like him? Not like him anymore, rather, maybe is a good way to put it. How do these things change? Do you feel the problem? Do you feel the tension? I want to let Paul actually build you what I call uh, an apparent dilemma. So I use the word apparent as in, well, it seems to be, right? So we read things in the Bible that are like apparent contradictions. They seem to be, but they're actually not. Right? This is a dilemma Paul builds. So look at verses 22 and 23. This is what Paul's going to, he's going to lay the groundwork for why this is important. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified as stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So Paul, as I said, has unraveled in verses 18 to 21 that the preaching of the gospel is folly to the world. But in verse 21, he mentions that it pleases God. So that's why Paul preaches the gospel, because God is pleased, right? His aim is what God thinks. If God's pleased by it, then Paul says, then we're going to preach. And it's folly from the world's eyes. So if you look, it says that God is pleased by this. It brings God pleasure. It is pleased God through the folly of what we preach. So Paul's not saying that the gospel's folly, but it seems to be folly from the world's eyes, right? And then if, if, if you think Paul says next what you wouldn't expect him to say, just think through what he's doing here. Preaching is folly to unbelievers for, if, you, if, you know the, if your Bible has the word for, that means because, right? Because Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. 
Let me, let me maybe un help you understand what, what I'm trying to say. If I was trying to date Kelly before we got married, which I did, and let's say I knew what she liked. Well, Kelly likes the Tennessee Volunteers, which is correct. And I knew she liked them. Wouldn't it be wise for me to all of a sudden say, I could like the colored orange. I like a big white tee. I like, I like football. Wouldn't you do that? Right? That, that, would be, that would be a wise idea. In order to catch her gaze, a man is going to adjust his strategy. Makes sense. But that's not what Paul does here. Do you see that? Isn't that strange? Preaching is folly because Jews want signs, Paul. They don't want preaching. Greeks want wisdom, Paul. They don't want preaching. They want wisdom. If this was dating, this would be easy, Paul. Come on, seriously, let's just change it. You know what they want? Give them the Tennessee tea. It's what they want. Just change it. Look what Jews want. So Jews demand signs. So think of Jews in the Old Testament. Think of the things that they're known for. Uh, their history is known for the pillar of fire from Exodus, right? So they see these big wonders of God. Fire from heaven like Elijah and the prophets of Baal, or the Red Sea splitting, or manna from heaven. So the Jews of Paul's day wanted proof. Well, prove it. Show me, show, show me the truth. Give me evidence of God's power. Demonstrate a miracle, something, right? In Greek, seek wisdom. So impressive facts. Like, wow us with your rhetoric, Paul. Get your dictionary out. I want something cool, like... I want, this doesn't say that. I don't believe what you're saying is true. Let's argue about it. Let's rationalize. Help me understand. That's what Greeks want. They want debates. They want wisdom. They want fine-tuning arguments. So the Greeks, or Gentiles, you could say, want logic. Sounds simple. Don't these types of people paint a picture of what you see today, even in the world? So a lot of times, often do you hear things like this. Well, if God would just write his name in the sky, I'd be a Christian. You guys ever hear that before? Something like that. If he would just reveal himself to me, I would believe. If he'd make it more clear, or maybe, maybe more of the Gentile side. If I had more scientific evidence for God, I would believe. I'd be a Christian. If you could prove to me that Jesus rose from the dead, I'd be a Christian. Do you hear, this? Do you hear those arguments even today? Those are almost kind of summarized in what Paul is saying, that we can even contextualize those for us. Now look what Paul says. So knowing that, so I, I really want to... As your pastor, I want to be a really good job at this. I don't want to tell you what the Bible says. I want to show you. I want you to say, oh, I see it. I want, well, Kale said, okay, but I want, I want to show you. So knowing that, look what Paul does in verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. What? Paul, what are you doing? You're missing the girl. She doesn't want that. She wants something else. Do, do, do you catch the problem? If Jews want X, Gentiles want Y, what should you preach? X and Y. Right? Wouldn't you do that? I'm not very good at math. I, I did okay in calculus, but I know if, if it's X and Y, the answer should be X, Y together. I know that. So why doesn't Paul preach X and Y? Why doesn't he do that? Um, maybe, you, maybe you remember this in elementary school. Um, what kind of word in grammar is the word but? Conjunction, right? Uh, I was told in school, conjunction, junction, what's your function, right? Again, yeah, embarrassing, sorry. But I, I remember it. What does it do? It joins two opposing ideas together, right? Opposing ideas. 
So listen to what Paul is doing. This is, this is, this is the confusing part. Look at verse 23. For, so Jews want these things. Wouldn't you think he would say, so instead we preach? No, no, no. He says, they want this opposing idea. But, conjunction, we preach something different. Why doesn't Paul unfollow the gospel? Why doesn't he remove the stumbling block? Why doesn't he make it easier? Why doesn't he help them? Why doesn't he adjust the message? Why wouldn't he do that? Isn't it a good thing to want more people saved if that, if that works? Isn't that a good thing? I thought Paul loved people. Why isn't he changing? Just, just a small, we're not looking for a big, just a little change, Paul, something small. Isn't that loving? But friends, this is not what Paul does. In fact, he does what the Bible typically does, which is something unusual, upside down. It doesn't make sense to us. It's not what we would do. He says, but we preach Christ crucified. This is the single job description if you're a Christian as a church, to preach Christ crucified. Jews want signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ. We stick to our guns. We exist for one reason, and it's to preach Christ. That's, it. That's why we exist. Trends come and go, popular schemes and programs rise and fall, but the church is established by Christ to preach Christ that he died in the stead of ruined sinners. That's why you exist as a church. So brothers and sisters, we must not waver on this or cease to do so, or we will cease to be the church. We will not fulfill our calling. It's tempting to bend, is it not? It's tempting. Are you aware that there are denominations currently splitting over these issues? Do you know that? They're splitting over what the gospel is because they're changing things. I don't want to name denominations, but they are changing. You can just look up common news that's out there because we want to make things more palatable, please people, make it, get more people in. So again, I want to ask you another question. If the gospel is precious and yet it's a stumbling block, how do you have any hope of someone getting converted? What do you expect them to do? They're just going to trip over it. When you share a Facebook post of like a Bible verse or a picture of a t- you know, text and pictures like a big verse, your, your, your Christian friends go, cool, right? We are not Christian friends, do <laughs> Wrong side of history, dude. Cool post, right? That's a real loving verse, right? Why? Today, my prayers at this text, you will see God's glory in salvation. All the glory, all the credit, all the hard work, all the work, all the heavy lifting is placed upon God. Therefore, we can freely and, and unashamedly preach the gospel knowing that God is the God over salvation. Does that make sense? Your responsibility is to preach Christ crucified. Who does the heavy lifting for conversion? God. Who's the only hope for someone getting converted? God. <clears throat> Today, I want to show you that in three ways. First, I want you to see God's glory by overcoming our unbelief. Verse 24 and 25, if you look at this, so Christ crucifies a stumbling block to natural man. Of our own self and our own nature, we have a problem. Because of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, all men, all mankind born in Adam, at the moment of conception, even my beautiful seven-month-old daughter, is a sinner. She didn't say it a whole lot, but she sins, right? She's already guilty of sin because she's born in Adam, right? She, she's a born sinner, right? As cute as she is. There's no such thing as neutrality, right? We're not, we're not neutral with God. There's no people that are enemies of God, friends, and eh, there's, there's some mixes, right? 
There's neither sheep and goats. There's neither wheat and tares. There's believers and unbelievers. There's no middle ground. So because of that, man is born and infected with sin in all of his faculties. So the Bible would say that all of you, all of you, like personally, is affected with sin, right? So my thoughts, my mind, my actions, my words, my desires, even the way I, I feel about things, right? We can have wrong feelings about things. Our will, it's what people call total depravity. So not that we're as awful. I'm not like Hitler, like, wow, kills the worst person on the face of the planet. But the totality of me is affected by sin. Nothing about me is pure. We see this in Matthew chapter 15. Jesus says what defiles a person is not from without side, but it's what? It's inside, right? The heart of the problem, as you probably heard before, is a problem of the heart, right? I'm the problem. Kale's the problem, right? What we desire, what comes out of our heart is, shows us what we're like, and our heart is the problem. Again, Jesus said it so bluntly in John chapter 3. He says this, Men love darkness and hate the light because we don't want our deeds to be exposed. So Jesus literally says that we hate light. What's the light? Well, it's truth, but more specifically, it's Christ, right? We just, ah, Jesus, back away. Do you know why people do things illegal at night? They don't want to get caught, right? We don't want Jesus to catch us during the day. Like, Jesus, don't, don't look at me when I sin. So we love darkness. We, our nature is to love sin, to love rebellion. Friends, this is our bleak nature. It's truly terrifying and sad and like, man, we're bad. Then verse 24, given that, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, in light of the guaranteed stumbling and disbelief at the preaching of the gospel, Paul cites another piece of grammar we just learned. What does he say? But, another conjunction, right? What's the function? Well, I'll tell you in a second. To those who are called. So Paul informs us that the gospel will not fail because people are called. Do you see that? In this text, there are now three groups of people. There are Jews, there are Gentiles, and who's the third category? Those who were called, right? So there's called Jews, called Greeks. I want to help you unravel it because it sounds confusing. In the Bible, the word calling is used a couple different ways in regards to salvation. One is like a general call, and one is what we'd call in a special call. Let me give you a few examples to help you understand. So the general call is what we would call the general call to repent, believe the gospel, right? So when you talk to a person on the street or at work or in your house or in Lowe's or Hy-Vee, wherever you guys go, in the cemetery maybe, I don't know, uh, and you tell them to repent and believe the gospel, you're giving them the general call. God says repent, Correct? Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Right? That's the call. That's Jesus commands you to come. Right? Acts seventeen thirty. God commands all men everywhere to repent. That applies to every every person. That's a general call. It applies to everybody. There's no distinction. There's no well. If you don't like things, well, if you're tall, well, if you're short, it's the general call. It's, it goes to all people. Right? General application, meaning without discrimination. And if, if you know much about the general call, we resist it all the time. And Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, which is a very blunt sermon, I will give you that. I love Stephen's sermon there. In Acts chapter 7, he says that the people always what? Do you remember this? 
They always resist the Holy Spirit. So there's, a, so there's a resistance to the general call, right? Do you have friends who are unbelievers? I have family who are. They resist the call, right? You tell them, hey, you need to, you need, you need to believe the gospel. No, nah, I'm fine. Right? It, it's an automatic resistance, right? The other kind of calling is what we call the effectual call or the especial call, people call it. It's the work of, it's the work of God to overcome the stubborn heart, to overcome the hard heart, to overcome the unbelieving heart so that the sinner will want to repent and believe the gospel. Let me give you a few examples. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So if you're a Christian, you, you are justified, correct? It means that you're not guilty. And you're going to be glorified. So those who are called, there's a category, will be justified. They are justified, rather. John chapter 6, Jesus says this, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Don't you love that text? But the distinction here that Jesus is making is, All that the Father gives to me will come. So Jesus can guarantee that people will come. Do you see that? Do you hear that? Isn't that important to know? That when you preach the gospel, people will come. It's not just going to fall flat on its face. God's powerful calling within the heart of, uh, of the person is what guarantees the outcome that God desires. This is, the, this is the special call, the effectual call. God can guarantee that someone will repent believe. Why? Because God's call creates faith. Well, let me give you maybe a silly illustration that I heard a pastor once use. So a general call, what Paul is not saying is Paul's not saying to those who are called. Does anybody have a dog? You got a dog? Let's say your dog's name is Lucky. Hey, Lucky, come here. Lucky, come on, come on, come on. He may or may not come. You want to know why? Because he doesn't want to. Right? He may or may not come. Right? He's a half to eat. I'm not coming to you. I don't have to do that. Right? That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's referring to maybe more of a, an effectual call, which is this. Uh, my son loves to wake up our little girl. So let's say that he went up to her, and while she was sleeping, he said, wake up. You know what's going to happen? She's going to wake up he, immediately. When he says it, she responds, right? She's awake. They're almost, you can't even tear them apart, right? Like, what, like, I know what came first, but they're just almost the exact same instant, right? The instant he says it, it creates what it commands. Lydia does not think and go, when, when Jude yells, wake up, she doesn't go, I don't know. I don't think so. What'd she do? She's awake, right? And she fidgets a lot because she's six months old. It's fun. That's what Paul's talking about. There is a call that God can do to a sinner to where they love the gospel. They're awake. There's no, I guess, uh, okay, I'll wake up. They awake. Do you, do, you, do you see and feel the distinction? Verses 24 and 25, look what happens. So those, those same people who see a stumbling block in Christ, who think it's folly, what do they now see Christ as? The same Christ, same gospel, Christ is now the power of God, the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Friends, God is the decisive, the decisive one in who is converted. Isn't that good news? Just picture, if it was left up to me, I would never become a Christian. Think about your own heart. If it was, you know what, all you, 100% you, you got it, I'll just watch. If you know 
the Bible, that's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. This is the power of God that now the person who was dead is now alive, and they see Jesus as beautiful. They love him. He's good. And it's not because the sinner is smarter than anybody else is, because God is kind. They see me as he really is. Their eyes are open. Their ears are open. They have a heart to understand. This is the same thing you see with Lazarus. What did Jesus do with Lazarus? Lazarus, come forth, right? There's a silly thing that believe, uh, pastors always say that if Jesus didn't specify Lazarus and just said, come forth, all the graves would just open up, right? He specifically said, Lazarus, come forth. So Lazarus said, okay. He didn't say, hmm, I'm tired. He arose, right? He's alive. Jesus effectually called him. He said, come forth, and he, he came forth, right? God raised us to life by grace alone. We who were dead in our sins are now born again to see Christ and to love him. Don't you see God's love for you if you're a believer today? He called you. He raised you up. You see and you love him. Friends, doesn't this encourage you and give you hope for your friends who are unbelievers? Can they oppose an omnipotent God? No. Your friends are not too far lost. There is not a, do you guys know who Paul was? You don't have a record of friends, I'm sure, who bust down church doors and throw people in jail. It's what Paul kind of did. You should have hope that God can move a hard heart. He can, just like that. So our role is not to change the gospel. We preach Christ crucified, and God does the heavy lifting. Isn't that good news? It's not your, it's not, not your job to convert people. Praise God, because I would blow, I'd blow, I'd lose them. I'd just butcher it. God does the heavy lifting. He is able to save to the uttermost, says Hebrews chapter 7. So this should cause us to want to pray more for our unbelieving friends and family. We should preach and we should pray. This should give us more language for our prayer life. God, would you please overcome their heart, please? Would you please save them with the missions offering? Would you please convert people? Please get the gospel there. Please, would you, would you make them believe? Force them. I, force them. I don't care. I prayed it. God forced them to believe. They're never going to believe. That's what Paul's saying. There is a call that God summons men to life. Because God is God. God can overcome all obstacles. So may we preach and pray faithfully, trusting that God will do what he will because he is good. He's not an angry God. He's a loving God. He loves saving sinners because he looks that much better. So this is God's glory in overcoming unbelief. Next, I want you to see God's glory now excludes pride. Anybody here got any pride in them? You know, technically, if you raise your hand, you're prideful. If you don't raise your hand, you're prideful about being humble. So, kind of a trick question. I'm really mean. Anyway, now our hearts, we might want to respond like this. Okay, pastor. I get it. But I, that's not, that's not how it worked, but I did X, Y, and Z. I want you to go back to your own conversion, which is actually what Paul does. Look at verse 26. For consider your calling, brother. So your calling, if you're a believer, consider how you were called. Consider your belief, your calling. Not many of you were what? Paul lists off all these things. Of all the human reasoning that I can probably think of, they're probably in these main categories, right? Um, look at what, look what he, he lists off here. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful or of noble birth. So the things that I would probably list were 
Well, you're a believer because uh, maybe your maybe your wisdom, right? Your thinking, your your social promise. Well, it makes sense why he is because look at him. I mean, look who he is, right? Maybe your position or wealth. Well, he had access to main, to things that I have access to. I'm like that's not fair. Look at Kale. He had all this stuff, right? Maybe your background, your family. Well, he had believing parents. Well, he was rich. Well, he had more opportunities. Well, he had the home field advantage, right? Maybe you could say that. That's what Paul immediately said. No, no, no. It is, that's, not why, that's not how you were called. You see what he's doing? He's destroying the things that I personally would say. Well, that's why. Well, look at him, right? Makes sense. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Consider your calling. Most of us were not born into the most exalted homes, the most prestigious living, the most bountiful opportunity that the world had to offer that the world would also consider an advantage. We didn't have most of those. Instead, Paul points to the reality of God. Look at this, verse 27. Consider your calling. Then verse 27 is a, it's a thunderbolt. But God chose. But God chose. Verse 28. But God chose. Do you see what he's doing? The reason why you were called... Why you stand as a called brother or sister is not because of you. It's not because of your background. It's not because you're smarter or had more sensitivity. It's because your pedigree, your advantage, your personal achievements, the sole reason lies within the loving heart of the God who chose you. Do you feel low? Do you feel... Oh, that's how this text should make you feel. God loved me? If you have your Bibles, look at, uh, put your finger here. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 7, real quick here. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay. As you can tell, I don't sing in the choir for a lot of reasons. That'd be one of them right there. <laughs> uh, the idea of God choosing people. Uh, it's not foreign to you. You know it a lot better than you would think. Um, Israel is the what people? Chosen people. Boom. Okay. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7. We're going to zoom in on verses, uh, sorry, on verse 6. But 1 through 5, God gives commands to the Israelites to destroy, to flee, to run from idols, to destroy them, not to intermarry with, with other nations. All because God's main point is if you don't destroy their idols, if you marry these women, if you get involved, you're, you're going to become a, an idol worshiper. The worst thing that can happen to you is that you can leave me. So God's saying, when you go to the promised land, just wipe everything out. Destroy idols, burn stuff down, don't intermarry. I don't care how great they are. It's not worth it. You're going to go astray, right? And look at verse 6, chapter 7. For, so because, this is why he's saying it, because you are a holy people, I'm sorry, people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, if you're an Israelite, you'd be thinking, <laughs> probably look at us, we're awesome. Look at verse 7. It's not because you're more than number than either of the people that the Lord has love upon you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. And what is the reason? Look at verse 8. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
Friends, do you understand the same logic that Paul is using that the Lord used in Deuteronomy? Why did God save you? Why did he choose you to see the gospel? It's because he loves you. It's not because of you. It's because he loves you. Just think about that for a second. Israelites were not so great. If you read their history, they're not the greatest people. <laughs> they mess up quite a bit, right? Sometimes they act, the problem is they act just like the other nations. That's the, that's the problem. They're not different. They act just like them, right? But because the Lord loved them, he displayed himself to them. This is a, a shocking comparison. Paul, Paul's doing the exact same thing, I think, here in 1 Corinthians. Friends, please marvel at this. Do not just glance over it. Do not let it go. Yahweh uproots all bragging from Israel. And Paul does the same. Ephesians 1 says this, that God chose you in love. There is no, well, it's either because he chose or because he loves you. It's in love that he chooses sinners. Do you understand that? It's because of his love for you, his particular love that he has for you. I love little kids. They make me laugh. They're funny. They say the goofiest thing. I think the darndest things we, we, we should probably say. But you better believe I love my son more than any, any other child on the playground. If a kid came up to me and said, hey, Mr. Mr., can I have some ice cream? And I have some of you, I'd probably say, sure. The instant my son needs something, okay, see a kid, right? I love my son more than any other boy out there because he's mine, because I love him. That's the distinction that God has for you if you're a believer. He has a love for the world, but if you're a believer, he loves you specially. You're his child. Doesn't that make you quake a little? It's not because of things he would foresee us do. Not because of things that we would do. It's not because the things we've done are good or bad. But it's because God freely chooses to love you if you're a believer. Doesn't that destroy your pride a little bit? It kind of vanquishes mine. Doesn't it sting a little in a really good way? Friends, consider your calling. We were not spiritually, we were the most spiritually unlikely, maybe to put it simply, to come to Christ on our own accord. We're, we're the Jews who would stumble or the Greeks who would think it's folly. Uh, I remember being in middle school. I remember falling asleep in church on purpose. Just didn't care about it. I would sleep, the, like, I would stretch out on the pew and like take a nap. Like 11 or something. I got converted when I was 12. So probably 9 or 10, but I remember doing that. God bored me. I didn't care. Right? Consider your, consider your calling. Notice our calling is also, specifically, it not only excludes pride, but its intention is to get rid of it because, look at verse 27 28, we see that God chose in order to shame. So again, this is pretty strong language Paul's using here. God's intended intention here, intended purpose, is to shame the world's system. Today we talked about the love of the world. What does it mean, like, the things God made? It means the world's system, Right? So God's intention is to shame the world's system. If you were in charge of getting who converted, wouldn't you go for the really famous people? Like, don't we all want some famous guy to get saved? All right. They can save Tom Cruise. People will all believe. That's just not correct, guys. But don't you, don't you feel that? I, I act that way. I think just save more athletes. Be more Christian in the world. That's the world's way of thinking. But God saves the lowly, the ones that don't even get looked at, so that God gets the glory. 
the rich would be at the helm of salvation. The famous would decide. The elites would get the benefit. Uh, there's an illustration I heard a pastor once used that uh, when he would lead Sunday school for little kids, you know, he would say, who wants some candy? And the kids would go, I want candy. You know, and who gets in line first? Well, the stronger fifth graders who are, you know, little, fifth, little first grader, watch out. Right? The stronger kids, right? So instead, when they would do that, he'd walk to the back of the line and get the little kids first. It's kind of how God does things, right? It's kind of like, oh, I guess I would never have done that, right? It's counterintuitive. It's not what you think. It's the opposite. But again, this is not new information. Think of the things that God has done, done to shame the world. Pharaoh, the great king, Pharaoh, was beat by an ocean. No swords, no catapults. They drowned. And the Israelites who were slaves just ran away. It's humiliating. Think of Joshua marching around the great, ruthless city Jericho. And it falls down. It just fell. They didn't like do anything. They just marched in circles, right? Think of Gideon, the 300 men who wiped out thousands of Midianites and then killed the princes. 300 people compared to thousands. And they're just like, I guess we can try. It wasn't because of them. It was because of God. Look at verse 29. Why does God act this way? What's, what's the point? Well, he tells you. So that, I love that word, phrase, because that's the answer. I ain't got to tell you. So that no human being might boast in the presence of the Lord. God's desire is to exclude boasting. There will be no self-applause in heaven. Heaven is not about us. Uh, there's probably, I heard a pastor once say, there's probably no mirrors in heaven. That way I can't see myself and go, oh man, I look good, right? Look what I did. There's probably no mirrors in heaven. I think that's a joke, but I think, there's, I think the truth is true. Is the point of heaven is to exalt, exult in God. God called me. God saved me. God did the work. The theme song heaven is not going to be Toby Keith's song, I want to talk about me, 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 me. It's just not going to be that way, right? We're not going to say, man, look what I did to get here. Look what I, no one's going to say that. What are we all going to say? God, you did it. You saved a wretch like me. It's not me. Everyone who believes in Christ came from Adam. Hence, we have a problem of unbelief. Romans chapter 8, verse 7, 8 says that. Instead, we're saved by grace through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that what? No one may boast. Friends, look at the unbelievers around you that you see, maybe on TV, the news, just in the world who rebel against God in unbelief. You know, a couple weeks ago, there was an LGBTQ parade in Kansas City. Do you guys know that? It's like Pride Fest or Pride Weekend or something. If it weren't for the grace of God, we would be out there. Why wouldn't you be? I'd be out there. I'd be promoting abortion if I wasn't a believer. I'd be bent in atheism probably. I would like worldly things. I would mock the gospel. I'd chase after my own lust. I'd do whatever I want. Or I'd just be the regular average guy who works 40 hours a week, doesn't care about the gospel, goes to work, sins, makes a lot of money, dies in unbelief. If it weren't for the grace of God and God's pleasure, I too would be just like it. Guys, I've been to Mardi Gras, okay, as a believer, witnessing, open air preaching, heading out tracks. I had beer thrown at me, beads thrown at me, yelled at when what the 
expletive are you doing here? Why are you even here? No one wants you to be here. And I remember thinking, if it weren't for God's power, I would be just like them. I'm not smarter. But because the Lord loved me and called me to himself. Before the foundation of the world, God loved and chose you. First John reminds us that we love him because he first loved us. He says hard upon you, Christian. That should carry you throughout the whole span of your life. It's a good thing. It's an encouraging thing. Shouldn't we be more humble towards unbelievers and our friends? They're not stupid. They're lost. You are lost. So we trust in God's greatness, his power that lowers us, and then we see the love of God by saving sinners like us. Saved a wretch like us, maybe. So God's glory excludes pride. Lastly, God's glory and salvation creates praise. Look at verse 30. This is kind of the, cha- this is the changing tide. This is Paul's summation. This is the, the cherry on the, the cake here. So what's the, what's the end result? Verse 30 and 31. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Friends, it is all of God. Because of him, you are in Christ. Who's the him? God the Father. He's placed you in his son. All the finished work of Christ, all that is credit to your account. First Peter chapter 1 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Again, in heaven, we're not going to boast about how we got there. We're going to boast in the God who got us there. Isn't that good news? Not going to be any jealousy in heaven. Want to know why? Because we all know who did everything. We're not going to fight over it. We just, you, you know. It's not like, well, 99.9% God. No, we know that's not right. We know the Lord did the work. We are saved by amazing grace. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Because of God's work, we are united to Christ by faith that we put in Christ, and therefore we are in Christ. Jesus' life, his death, his burial, his resurrection is counted to us. We're united to him. Our sins, our death, our wrath is placed on Jesus. Jesus' perfect I always use a phrase like credit scores, perfect life, all of his obedience, all his perfection, his resurrection. Guess who gets that? I get that. By faith, I'm united to Jesus. Kind of like, a, like wedding vows, you're united, right? What's mine is yours, yours is mine. Same with Christ. What's mine is his, which is not a whole lot, just a bunch of sin. What's his is mine. I get everything. I'm flush with cash now. Righteously. Spiritually, it's a joke, okay? I get everything he's got. It's all mine because of my union with Christ by faith. Faith is the instrument or the means by how we're united to Christ. Look what this does for us. Look at these words. Wisdom. The solution to our sin problem. God had to become man. God is, Jesus Christ is God. He has two natures and one glorious person. He's sinless to the cross, took God's wrath. He solved the problem. Cool. I get that. Righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. We are clothed in Christ with the righteousness of God. God sees us the same way he sees Christ. Can you marvel at that for just a second? The way that God sees his son is how he sees you. Isn't that rich? Sanctification. Jesus watched us. He, made, he makes us holy, sets you apart. So now in holiness you are 
no longer in sin. You're separated from what sin is. You're separate for God's use. Though you're still going to sin, you're going to sin less, right? Redemption, last one. We are rescued from our slavery to sin. No longer are we bound to sin's power. Every day you should be freer from sin. The Christian is never going to be sinless, but as a Christian you should sin less, right? That's the, that's the, that's the distinction here. He's freed us from the penalty of sin. We're soon being freed from the power of sin. One day we'll be freed from the presence of sin. That's the good news of the gospel. I want to give you a quote here. Does anybody know who John Bunyan is? Breaking my heart, people. I have a head of him on my bookshelf at home. I'll bring him in one day. Do you like to, do you like to say, there's Bunyan? Yeah, it is. Uh, John Bunyan wrote the famous book called Pilgrim's Progress. If you've not read it, you need to. It is probably the second most best-selling book outside the Bible, is what most people kind of think. Uh, he wrote it uh, while he was preaching the gospel in London hundreds of years ago. He was imprisoned for preaching the gospel due to a law. And he wrote an autobiography while, while he, he was in prison. Um, in verse 31 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is the text that gave him uh, assurance. He was wrestling with unbelief. He, he wasn't a believer. Um, he's writing about how he got converted. Um, he wrestled all his life with belief and assurance. And how can I'm a believer? Like, I just, I sin all the time. I don't even think I'm a Christian. He, he wasn't converted yet. But here's how it happened. Let me read it to you. One day, as I was passing into the field, suddenly the sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I thought that I could see Christ at God's right hand. Yes, there indeed was my righteousness. Whatever I was, whatever I was doing, God could not say about me that I did not have righteousness, for it was standing right before him. I also saw that it was not my good feelings that made me righteous, and not my bad feelings that make me unrighteous. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday and today and forever. Now indeed my chains fell off my legs. I was loose from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away. So that time forth from now on, God was no longer dreadful. I went to my Bible to look where the verse was found, and I found this. This is the text is talking about. Thy righteousness is in heaven. But I could not find it. So my heart began to sink again until suddenly there came to my remembrance. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 30, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. From this, I saw that the other sentence was also true. I live sweetly at peace with God through Christ for a long time. So friends, when you have quote unquote good days, bad days, God does not look at you upon your good days and bad days as well. Today, you're more of a Christian today. Today, you had a bad day. You're not really that righteous today. It's unchanging. Because Christ is unchanging. So that let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God saves him so he gets the credit. He gets the glory. We could sing about him, look to him, enjoy him, savor him. I want to read you one final quote and then we'll end here. No one says it better than Charles Spurgeon. Let me just put it that way first. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said about his conversion. When I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And I thought I sought the Lord earnestly, but I had no idea that the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. I can recall the very day and hour when I first received these truths in my own soul, and as they were, as John Bunyan says, burnt into my heart with a hot iron. I can recollect how I felt that day. Here's what he says. One week night I was sitting in the house of God. I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, so don't be doing that. <laughs> For I did not believe... 
the thought struck me. How'd you come to be a, a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how'd you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, but then asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. But how came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment, I saw it was God at the bottom of it all, and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me, and from that doctrine I have not departed. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. Let's pray.